The Fed is shutting down its bank term funding program, the emergency tool it came up with during last year's March and April bank crisis. But this isn't just about closing the BTFP. Clearly, the Fed is pumping up the discount window to be the successor or replacement for the BTFP. Now, this isn't just about moving banks from one Fed program to another. There are deeper issues here, including those relating to lender of last resort functions. Why can't the Fed seem to zero in on them when those should be its first and primary task to begin with? To begin answering those questions, let's start with where we are right now, the bank term funding program as it exists today. Well, the Fed just came out with an announcement that said they're going to change how they view the BTFP and how they handle the BTFP from here on until March 11th. And on March 11th, they're going to stop taking new loans to begin with. The problem, or at least the immediate problem as it relates to the BTFP, is that it has become a sort of free money machine for banks to take advantage of some weaknesses in the design when it came out as a tool last year. What happens is the Federal Reserve charges an interest rate to borrow funds from it. The issue is, though, that interest rate has fallen over the last several months, making it profitable to arbitrage the Fed. Basically, because the Fed charges OIS plus 10 basis points, which is roughly around 490 right now. So 480 is the 12-month OIS plus the 10 basis point surcharge. You get about 490. So if you're a depository bank, you can borrow from the Fed at 4.9%, and then the reserves that you get from the Fed just leave them on account with the Federal Reserve. And you'll get IOR or IORB, this interest on reserves that the Fed pays you. Right now, that's currently 5.4%. So you're borrowing from the Fed at 4.9 and leaving those funds with the Fed to get paid 5.4. So it's about 50 basis points roughly in free money profit. And of course, lots have been made about this over the last couple of months as OIS rates have gone down, which is really the point here, but that's not the, that, that's not the topic of our video here. Basically, the Fed doesn't like the negative press that it's been getting. So what it says is we're going to stop, we're going to close that loophole from here on until March 11th. We're going to charge you the same rate we pay on reserves, which means there's no free money anymore. And then on March 11th, we're going we're gonna to stop taking new loans to the BTFP. But that raises an issue here. How much of the BTFP's current balance is about this free money arbitrage and how much might be actual legitimate banks struggling to find funding in the marketplace. That's, I think, is what the Federal Reserve is really worried about. And that's something the Fed has been trying to deal with clearly in pumping up what they call primary credit or what used to be known as the discount window as a means to replace this. Because if there are a few banks, if there are a lot of banks that have actually been using the BETFP, and there's every reason to believe this, then they're going to need someplace else to go should something happen in the future. Or when the BTFP winds down over time, as those loans from last year start to roll off the Fed's balance sheet, they're not going to replace them with the BTFP. Where are these banks going to go? And if you're the Federal Reserve and you think this might be an issue, you need to have something in place before you just shut down this one window. But it's not really about primary credit, nor is it really about the BTFP. It's about why we keep having the Fed have to rejigger its tools time and time and time again. 
The BTFP clearly was put together with little forward thought because the Fed was caught completely off guard last year and had to come up with something on the fly. And so what they're trying to go back to is the primary credit, the discount window, which is a whole host of issues there. But you constantly get this impression that we're missing something, that the Fed is missing something. Why do they keep having to do this? Why are they having so much trouble zeroing in on this lender of last resort function? Because as we're taught in school and reinforced in the financial media, the Fed is supposed to be the lender of last resort. That's it's, it's what it's supposed to be good at. And yet we keep finding out that's the one thing it really can't do all that well at all. It can't do many things well, but this more than anything. They have to keep inventing new tools. And part of the issue is about this lender of last resort function. And it has to do with the difference between a financial crisis and a monetary crisis. This is something that keeps coming up all the time too, whether we realize it or not. The Fed has been able to get away with calling these things financial crisis, including the global financial crisis in 2008, which was a global not financial crisis. It was a monetary crisis. And the difference is everything. And that difference is exactly what we're talking about here. A financial crisis is after people do stupid things because people will always do stupid things in the financial realm. They create a bunch of stupid assets that are valued wrongly, valued incorrectly, that leads to a situation once everybody realizes everybody was being stupid, somebody's gonna have to take some economic losses because we have to revalue piece of crap assets to what they're actually worth. And so there's gonna be some financial pain and some economic pain during that revaluation process. That's bad enough, and that's something like the SNL crisis or the dot-com bubble, maybe even the crypto bubble of the last couple of years, but it doesn't lead to the type of situation where we have banks failing, or it doesn't lead to the, the, the spillover where banks failing cause something like 2008. We're missing something. And that missing piece is a monetary crisis, which is distinct and different from a financial crisis. It may come from the same place where we have a bunch of stupid assets and people doing stupid things, but in this case, when people have to start selling these assets in order for them to be repriced, the markets for those assets simply disappear. In fact, the markets for all assets and money in circulation completely dries up so that when we start to try to discover any prices, it causes further problems. And those further problems mean even good institutions have to sell their good assets and find no markets for them and everything ends up being repriced because there isn't enough liquidity in the system. And by liquidity, what do we mean by that? We mean some form of asset that is useful as a settlement instrument. That's, that's a whole different video there. But essentially a monetary crisis is where you can't even sell good assets and everybody can't liquefy their balance sheet. So everybody has to sell something somewhere and everything spirals out of control. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to spiral out of control in 1929 style or in 2008 style in order for it to be a huge issue. In fact, this is something that central bankers have been trying to deal with and been talking about for a very long time, since really since 2008. They realized there's something not, they're, they're missing something. What they had hoped is that the QE regime would calm everything back down and that would lead to everything going back to the way it was before 2007. Well, that didn't actually work. Remember Janet Yellen back in 2017, this was June 2017 in London, she was asked about this topic and she said, 
Would I say there will never, ever be another financial crisis? Well, it's not financial. Probably that would be going too far, but I do think we're safer, and I hope that it will not be in our lifetimes, and I don't believe it will be. But as we've seen over the last couple of years, it does, it has happened again. And it has happened in several cases where maybe not everyone recognized it, like 2011 and 2012. That wasn't a European sovereign debt crisis. That was another monetary crisis where markets became illiquid. The system itself became illiquid, deflationary money, the interruption of free flow and credit throughout the global system. Just a couple days ago, when asked about this whole stuff about the primary credit becoming the successor to the BTFP, a woman by the name of Susan McLaughlin, who was a 30-year veteran of the New York Federal Reserve, who happened to oversee the discount window during the financial crisis of 2008, she had this to say about the primary credit discount window issue. There's been three stress episodes in the past 15 years, been more than that, but three that have been recognized, and we need to be taking a closer look at our lender of last resort tool set. And here we are again. Why in the hell does the Fed in 2024 need to be taking another look at its lender of last resort tool set? This is the question you need to keep in the back of your mind in all of these things. Why are they continuing to go through this? The obvious answer is they're struggling. They can't get it right. They can't zero in on being an effective lender of last resort. We saw that last year. We saw that in March, 2020. We saw it in 2011, 2012. We saw it in 2008. We saw it in September, 2019 and various places along the way. Sometimes the consequences are incredibly dire and obvious. Sometimes they're not so much, but that doesn't mean that they aren't there and they haven't happened. And the Fed knows that some of these things have happened. They realize it. On December 1st, Vice Federal Reserve Vice Chairman Barr gave a speech where he talked about primary credit, bringing that back to the forefront. Here's, one th here's how we started out. Banks have previously said that they are afraid of receiving negative feedback from their supervisors in the event that their sole grounds for tapping the discount window is that it is the most convenient and cheapest form of funding immediately available to them. In light of this, we at the Federal Reserve have been underlining the point to banks, supervisors, analysts, rating agencies, and other market observers, and the public through numerous channels that using the discount window is not action to be viewed negatively. Banks need to be ready and willing to use the discount window in good times and bad. But as I pointed out in a recent video, it's not all about stigma. There are issues related to collateral. You have to have the collateral to go to the discount window. And that was one of the issues that I raised when Silicon Valley Banking Signature and First Republic were failing last year. Why didn't they go to the discount window? And we got the answer to that. They didn't have the collateral for it. But if they did have the collateral for it, they wouldn't have needed the discount window in the first place. They could have just gone to repo. So already, just in asking these questions, we're starting to uncover and unravel some of these mysteries that aren't really mysteries. We're just looking in the wrong place and using the wrong people to do the looking. By the way, this is something that we do at Eurodollar University. I'm going to do a shameless plug here. Eurodollar University memberships, the deep dive analysis subscription, even the daily briefing subscription. We are asking these questions. We are looking behind all of these rocks and pulling up as many clues as we possibly can to figure out what's really missing in all of this economic commentary. And as, as members have found out, as subscribers have found out, we are indeed missing a whole bunch of stuff.
So that's Eurodollar University membership subscriptions. That's at our website, eurodollar.university. In that recent video, we talked about the G30 report that was chaired by former Federal Reserve Bank of New York President Bill Dudley, who was the open market desk during the financial crisis in 2008, which was really a monetary crisis. Basically, they said, yeah, the discount window didn't work because there wasn't enough collateral for people to use it. And if you have collateral, you don't need the discount window. You go into repo. But therein lies the issue. What if you can't go to repo? Let's go back to Barr back on December 1st. Moreover, banks that have pre-pledged collateral at the discount window and tested its operations are not dependent upon other market infrastructure and payment systems to borrow against this collateral. These features mean that the discount window preparedness provides additional diversification benefits that can meaningfully enhance effective liquidity risk management. What is he talking about here? Basically, he's trying to tell you there is no downside to pre-posting collateral to the Federal Reserve, which is, again, something that came up in that G30 report. What they're saying is we need people to have collateral in order to use the discount window, so we're trying to make the collateral issue less of one in order to effectively mobilize it. The discount window's there, just need, to, need the collateral to do it. But again, they don't ask the next question. Although Barr did get into it, which was, let, let's continue with Barr here. But times have changed. I see several flaws in our previous assumptions. First, it may be difficult for a firm to conduct significant asset sales in a short time frame without becoming the subject of adverse attention. Or if the firm is large, without affecting market prices with fire, fire sale effects and potentially leading to broader contagion. Because the assumption had been in the post-monetary crisis era that banks which hold high-quality liquid assets would just be able to sell them in the marketplace in order to fund their operations for a period of 30 days. And what he's saying is that eh, maybe that's not a good solution either because that can lead to further knock-on consequences. Again, the difference between financial crisis and monetary crisis. Continuing with Barr here, because we're getting to the point. Second, the March stress, March 2023 stress, underlined the possibility that private repo markets may not be a viable financing channel for banks that need to rapidly ramp up access, especially for banks that may not regularly transact in these markets, even if such repo markets can be a viable source of liquidity for banks that regularly tap such markets and have more gradual funding stresses. Sharp shifts in calls on private repo market capacity, particularly by firms experiencing stress, may not be easily met. Now we're getting somewhere, though it's not clear that Barr actually got there with us. Essentially, if the repo market is working, then if you've got the collateral, you're a viable institution, you've got the repo market. If you're an individual bank that finds itself under stress, you have a lender of last resort in the repo market. However, there are times, and there have been repeated times, when the repo market and other wholesale markets, not forget, this is not just about repo. We also think about FX too. This is a global thing, not just about US banks. But if you're an individual bank that is experiencing stress and you've got collateral, you can go to the repo market. You don't need to go to the discount window. And so what they're really saying about the discount window is when the repo market isn't working, that isn't a place for individual banks to go. And then they can't go to the discount window because they don't have the collateral. So what do we do there? And so their focus is on the individual institutions that are experiencing stress rather than why the repo market isn't working in the first place that is causing these institutions 
to have all of these breakdowns. See, the issue isn't about the Fed and the primary credit and discount window BTFP or individual banks. Why is the repo market not working such that any firm that is experiencing stress could access it rather than the Fed? The breakdown in repo wholesale markets, it's about collateral, but really it's about dealer balance sheet constraints, which is something we keep coming back to over and over and over again. The primary, the superseding issue, before we get into the nitty gritty about BTFP and how banks fund their emergency operations, the bigger issue is these individual banks find themselves under stress during periods when the repo market is already stressed. That's what Barr was saying, but not really saying. So as the repo market's under stress, shouldn't we ask the question why that is? What is really the issue here? And the Fed can't answer that. I'm not saying they can't, they're not intellectually capable. There are, they are regulatory not capable. I'm going to throw them a little bit of a bone here. Their focus has to be on U.S. banks because the Fed isn't a central bank. It is not the steward of the U.S. dollar. They are a domestic bank regulator. So they're coming at this from the perspective of individual banks. And there's also the issue of how this wholesale marketplace, repo FX and all these dealer capabilities take place outside the United States, which the Fed is not supposed to pay any attention to. It's, it's power, it's authority, it's, it's everything ends at the U.S. border. So if we have a global repo problem, it's understandable the Fed would focus on just the U.S. bank consequences of something like that. And that's really what they're trying to do here. But we don't have that limitation and constraint. And we have to ask these questions. We're more interested in why the repo market would be broken to begin with, such that individual banks that are feeling stressed can't use the repo market, which there's all sorts of questions about the effectiveness of the discount window in that situation anyway, which is what we came into with March and April last year. They didn't have the collateral. Silicon Valley Bank didn't have the collateral to begin with, and they couldn't get any, so they couldn't use the discount window to begin with, which just gets us back into this whole issue about pre-positioning collateral. And we keep spinning our wheels over and over again in all of this slapping, trying to slap Band-Aids on what is a bigger problem. We're ignoring the bigger issue, which is why do we have the repo market and wholesale funding breakdowns to begin with? But again, that's outside the scope of the Fed's authority. And so that's where we keep getting stuck. The Fed keeps having to rejigger its various tools because it can't actually tackle the big problem. And the big problem remains a big problem because the Fed can't actually tackle it. In fact, the Fed won't even admit that's the problem. Because once you realize the euro dollar system, that's the real issue here, you start asking questions about the Fed and what it's actually doing. But as we keep going through these over and over again, the Fed having to change its tools, revise its tools, come back to old tools that didn't work the first time and maybe see if they can be more effective, they can't zero in on their lender of last resort activities. They can't get it right because they can't do money. They don't lose the monetary system. The monetary system is outside the scope of the Federal Reserve. And that's a huge shock to most people. But that's what the main takeaway from all of this stuff should be. Always ask yourself, why do they have to continue to change these tools? And that is the answer. Or at least that is where the questions should really start. If, the, if these banks are having problems because they can't tap repo on an emergency basis, what is it about repo? What is going on there? What are the systemic monetary issues that keep leading to these repeated monetary crises where 
lender of last resort doesn't happen anyway. And this is why we pay so much attention to all of these esoteric statistics, these, the stuff you don't see in the mainstream, because we're trying to get a sense of what is happening in these wholesale markets? What is going on in the black hole of the euro dollar system? Because if it does break down, we sure as hell aren't going to be able to depend upon the Fed. It's going to have to invent some other new tool on the fly just to try to contain the damage. That's what the Fed actually is. It's not a central bank. It's a janitor. They keep trying to clean up and realizing their cleanup could be a little bit better. That's what this is all really about. When for us, the issue is the bigger picture, the black hole. As far as 2024 is concerned, is there something for us to be concerned about? Well, that's what the markets are saying. It's not DEFCON 1, everything's going to fall apart tomorrow, but there are noises, there are indications, there are signals that more than suggest, very strongly suggest, that there's more going on here than just the BTFP free money, free for all. There are stresses and strains evident already that could potentially become another one of those we would rather not experience. We would rather not the Fed test out its latest incarnation of lender of last resort activities and functions that we know are not going not to be up to snuff. There are signs that say we should be paying attention to this, and we have to wonder if the Fed sees those same signs and they're doing the same thing. If you want to see the video I did on the G30 report about pre-positioning collateral and the Bank Policy Institute's response to it, this insane idea, that's the video I've got linked below. I, as always, I thank you very much for joining me. Huge, huge thank you if you are a Eurodollar University member or a research subscriber. And until next time, take care.